Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and is officially delighted that Chorley FC have progressed further in the FA Cup than Crystal Palace FC. Unofficially, furious, but officially, magic of the cup, yeah, 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 blah, blah. I'm Kevin Day (laughs) and he, he, the one that's chuckling is Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire, who as we speak is still in with a chance of a trip to Wembley, Kieran. Well, I am, but I'm counting absolutely zero chickens. And, 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 I'm, and the thing is, I can't even gloat about Palace losing because we're recording this on Sunday morning and Brighton haven't yet been defeated by Newport in, in, a, in a slightly bigger cup upset. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be very delicate with what I say about the FA Cup. Yeah, I'd, I'd get you gloating in now. It's a, it's a tragic thing to admit that my only consolation on Friday night was that our game finished slightly before Aston Villa's youth team lost to Liverpool. So we we were officially the first team knocked out of the third round of the FA Cup, which is some small some small consolation. It's a Mickey Mouse tournament anyway. We all know that, Kieran. Uh, Kieran, it's questions day, but we do have a couple of news stories to bring our lovely listeners. And, um, well, we may as well get this over and done with, Kieran, because they, they ask for it every week They and they moan when they're not in. But here they are, Derby County, up first, now what? Um, well, a, a report came out uh, in The Athletic uh, Saturday night, which was shortly after they'd been knocked out of the FA Cup yeah. by non-league Chorley, uh, to say that uh, the December wages have not been fully paid for all players. Now, th- this had been rumbling on uh, a couple of weeks ago, and at the time people thought it was connected to a potential takeover, uh, but we're now, you know, we're now at 9th of January, 10th of January. Um, you would have thought that any short-term issues would have been sorted out. So it, it's not helping uh, a situation which has rumbled on far too long. I think I think Derby do need uh, sort of to turn over uh, a new leaf and to be in a position under new ownership to 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 go wherever they want to go. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's 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 further embarrassment on on what's not been a good time for them historically. Twenty uh, twenty. Now, we know, Kieran, that The Athletic is normally a very reliable source. Uh, the journalism is normally very accurate on this. So are we talking about one or two first-team players? Are we talking about the whole squad? Are we talking a situation here where players who you know are recovering from COVID can't be asked to play because they're not getting paid? What's, what's, what's the official line, do we know? Well, the, the official line is that uh, it, it's been vague. Um, all, all we know is... Not all players have been paid, not all wages. So it could be a similar situation to what we've seen at Sheffield Wednesday, uh, another club who failed to pay their wages in November, but I understand they have now been paid up, where uh, I think at Sheffield Wednesday they were limited to the first £7,000 of their pay packet uh, in in November. Uh, Unfortunately, Sheffield Wednesday and and Derby, they, they do have a few parallels in the sense that neither have published their 2019 accounts, so they're mm. therefore both in breach of company law, both have sold their stadiums to the club owners and as a result have been charged by the EFL. Uh, both have had... Uh, Derby were completely uh, exonerated in terms of the sale of the stadium, although they are being pursued by the EFL on something else. 
uh, Sheffield Wednesday, as we know, had a had a six point reduction, uh, but the, the EFL and other teams were initially going for twenty one. So, uh, yeah, not not great times for either clubs. You know, I think I think fans are just fed up to their back teeth of all this uh, financial side of things. Yeah, can I point out to Derby fans as well that not only do Kieran and I take no pleasure in having to include Derby in most pods, but we're actually becoming quite fond of you, to be perfectly honest. There's a situation at the moment where temporarily Derby are almost becoming my second favourite club. If I if I had such a thing, I don't approve of such a thing, but I'm, I, I generally start the day worried about what's happening to Derby and hoping they do well. So um, I look forward to the day where we can mention either Derby nor Sheffield Wednesday and when we get invited to a massive piss-up when Derby plays Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> yes. During which time I will be only too happy to take your teetotal share of said massive pizza. <laughs> um, and, and talking of takeovers, some interesting lines have emerged about the way the Burnley takeover was financed. And I noticed yesterday, Kieran, across several uh, media, uh, well, on radio and TV, that's as several as it gets in my house. But there was quite a lot of speculation about the Burnley takeover and in particular how much money may be left for Sean Dyche to spend on players? Yes. Um, th- this sort of started to come out on Thursday. I-, I was contacted by a couple of financial journalists with queries about the deal. Um, and we-, we found out on-, on the 31st of December, and being, as you know, I'm quite dweeby, so I'd, I'd found it at Company's House that-, that Burnley were taking out some form of loan uh, in in respect of we weren't quite sure at the time, and it's now started to crystallise that the the new owners ALK, which is this American company, um, have borrowed money to acquire Burnley and have effectively used Burnley as the vehicle to borrow the money. Right. Um, now we, we didn't know how much, and we didn't know at what interest rates. Um, Matt Slater again going to the Athletic, and, and Matt is a excellent investigative journalist you know he's he's not he's he's not he's not interested in clicks he's not a shit stirrer you know he's one of the guys who i've got an awful lot of faith in um he reported that it was 80 million pounds had been borrowed um and i'd heard from the the some of the other sources um that the interest rates were somewhere between 10 and a half to 12 percent oh wow Funny. Which is okay. It's it's not credit card rates, but it's it's not cheap. It's, you know, it's it's far more than normal mortgage rates. Yeah. Um, not now, Tottenham in, rates, is it? No, no. I mean, you know, Tottenham borrowing at two, two and three yeah, percent. So yeah. that, that does look, uh, you know, quite quite steep. I think Bloomberg they took the view that it was sixty million. So even even if we drop it down to sixty million, and you know, we're generous on the interest rate and we make it you know ten and a half percent. It's it's still the thick end of, of £7 million a year hmm. that Burnley are now paying out in interest. Now, the owners have said, and, and there's nothing wrong with borrowing. Let, let's get that straight. There's nothing wrong with borrowing. The owners have said it's exactly the same as taking out a mortgage. And that has some merit. I, I fully understand that. But if you're taking out a mortgage, most people aren't borrowing at 10%. Um, and also, if you think about it, Burnley were debt free. So yeah. they've gone from the position of effectively owning the club with no mortgage to owning the club with a mortgage in, in terms of the structure. Right. Um, and that interest has to be paid. Um, and that interest broadly equates to 
um, a little bit more than Burnley would normally get in a season from gate receipts. Right. So, yeah, it, it is. It isn't brilliant, but it's not bad either, provided Burnley stay in the Premier League, because Burnley get over 80% of their money from TV money. So if they're in the Premier League, that's fine. And also, the owners are saying, well, we want to position Burnley um, sort of a bit like St. Pauli, as sort of a, a rebel club, an underdog club. Yeah. And to to make more money from commercial deals, to make people aware of it in, in the US and other markets, and and if they do that, and, and if that the the extra money they bring in exceeds the uh, the amount of money that they're paying out on in interest on the loans, then that's fantastic. But it's not guaranteed, and um, then the the Burnley new owner, a guy called Alan Pace, he. He he contributed on social media to say, well, the stuff in the athletics not true. Um, he'd also said, uh, I think a few days earlier, that Southampton had destroyed their academy and then sort of rode back on it a bit. So he he'd, he'd already sort of weaponized one set of fans who were not yeah. pleased with him. Um, the Burnley fans on on social media supported Alan Pace, which is understandable. He, he has been very engaging. So yeah. they piled into to Matt Slater um, and to a certain extent me, but I think they're, 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 they, they weren't – all I was doing, I was just you know, repeating other stories. Yeah. Um, so it, it got a little bit testy there. Um, and we also had Sean Dyche speaking Thursday and Friday, I think it was, um, with suggestions that football players should be vaccinated. Yeah, and I think yeah that's not gone down well, but I don't think it's been fully understood. He he's effectively said that football you know football players football clubs should pay for the players to be vaccinated after priority groups have been yeah. sought. And if that's the case, then then fine. But I, I, I guess the big issue is. When when do we draw the line as to who's a priority group? You know, is it should it be just people in care homes, people on the front line services over seventies? Should we drop it to over sixties? Should we drop it to the over fifties? Because there's about ten or eleven tiers of different people yeah. um, in the uh, in the vaccination groups where he's suggesting footballers should go ahead of. Um, is, is, is it was a little bit unclear, and, and you know, and, and there's no way you know it's, it's been reported as Sean Dyche effectively saying you know football clubs should buy priority, yeah, and I don't think that is the case at all. But it, it just goes to show how sensitive things are at present, mm. um, because if if football clubs are going to take priority over other professions, then I guess you're going to get the you know, the bankers and the lawyers and the accountants saying, well, you know, we, we make a lot of money for the economy as well. Why can't we be a priority employment group? Um, and, and I think things could get a little bit uh, a little bit uncomfortable. So, um, yeah, Burnley have been in the news. I mean, yeah, the deal has gone ahead. The new owners do certainly seem to want to engage with the fans, but... Um, it's, the deal isn't quite as great as perhaps it was originally flagged. Yeah, on the Sean Dyer situation, I know I know a couple of lawyers and I know one or two accountants, Kieran, mainly through you and Bobby Numbers. 
I don't know any bankers, so as far as I'm concerned, bankers don't get vaccinated full stop, even when everyone's got an available vaccine. They really are at the back of the queue. Um, from Sean Dyche's point of view, I mean, he's he's probably saying what a headmaster would say about his, his teacher, Sean Dyche, is saying, look, there's been a debate in the last week or so about whether football should continue. Steve Bruce saying it certainly shouldn't. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer saying it certainly shouldn't. And what Sean Dyche is saying is if you want us to continue, you have to make us safe. I, I kind of understand that point of view, even if I don't necessarily agree with it. But on the, the takeover, Kieran, did, does, am I right in thinking then that this is a Glazer-style deal, but on a smaller scale? That In other words, these people have, have leveraged a loan against a club that they didn't quite own yet. Yes, yes. I mean, right. there there are certainly parallels with the Glazer deal. It is on a on a much smaller scale, um, but the trouble with debt and, and often the type of debt that gets involved here is: um, is there going to be a repayment date for the loans? Because they these tend to be interest only loans. And if and if we take a look at what's happened with Manchester United, the Glazers borrowed around about £700 million to buy the club. And that was in 2005, I think it was. Um, The vast majority of those loans are still outstanding. And the the interest cost um, since the Glazer takeover is around about £830 million. Now, United fans would say, well, why couldn't that have gone on A, the playing squad, B, improving facilities at Old Trafford because you know, we've said on more than one occasion it, it's looking at it's, it's not it's not it's not a fun stadium to go to once you're in there and trying to sit down we are I'm, I, I, I can't sit down at Old Trafford because I'm too tall and, and that shouldn't be the case in a modern stadium um, uh, or, or see perhaps you know a, a, perhaps a, a little bit kinder on ticket prices although uh, to be fair to Manchester United and I've always said this they, they have frozen season ticket prices for practically the whole of the last decade and, and just finally, do you think this will have an impact on Sean Dyche's war chest, for want of a better word? Um, I, I think Burnley fans were initially excited because of the timing of the deal. Uh, and I've said myself, you know, financially, I've always thought Burnley to be the best run club financially in, in the Premier League, that they had more scope to spend money. Um, because they were in such a strong position from an FFP point of view, because they've always that they've always broken even. In fact, they tended to do far better than that. Um, I think this is this news suggests that because uh, I think the deal is worth one hundred and eighty million pounds. Uh, if they borrowed sixty to eighty, there's also talk of Burnley had about fifty million pounds in cash. Uh, sitting in their bank account, and that's gone to pay for the deal as well. Oh right. Okay. So uh, the I think the I think Burnley fans who were looking at uh, yeah, the the Mbappe to Turf Moor rumours, uh, I think they'll probably have to sort of temper their expectations to a certain extent mm. with regards to that. But is there money to spend? Yes. Um, is it going to be football fans? You know, I've always said this thing uh, to have. Uh, yeah, a benevolent dictator at a club, somebody who 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 writes out the checks, uh, in in the sense of what we've seen at uh, at Chelsea with with Abramovich, and, and I've got to say, yeah, we've had the same at Brighton. You know, our owners stuck in four hundred million quid, uh, and we're losing money every year. But 
he's, he's a fan as well. You know, that type of owner, that model works. I don't think it's going to be the model that operates at Burnley. The new owners are very confident that they have software which can identify bargain players. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, they're, they're one of these data-driven organisations, or rather, they own one of these data, data data companies, and I think they're going to use Burnley as um, as an exhibit of, of just how good the, these uh, the, these algorithms are. Uh, and if it works, fantastic! You know, I'll, I'll be absolutely delighted because I do think very highly of Sean Dyche, and it'd be really good for him. Uh, if, if it doesn't work, then as we've said, it's going from owning a house with no mortgage to owning exactly the same house, but now you've got a mortgage and you've got to go make those mortgage payments. And, and data-driven transfers can be a hard sell for fans as well. Like you're saying, if you're if you're talking to your, your mate who's a Burnley fan who was suddenly expect, who was expecting maybe Mbappe coming in and has now been led by the data to the Bulgarian second division where there's a promising centre-back that's coming in instead it's uh it's a difficult one isn't it and like it says t- it would take some of the gloss off it for Burnley fans but in general it still seems like a exciting positive bit of news for them and, and talking of news Kieran we've got one more story before we have some very interesting questions although I have to say one of the questions is way more interesting to you than to me. <laughs> I, I literally had to ask Ali whether I was reading it <laughs> right and she has she is no, she knows yeah. as much about accounting as I do anyway um there is another news story and Every now and again, Kieran, when Guy sends through the stuff that he wants us to talk about on the, on the pod for us to turn into a, a script and you to turn into a, a mind map, every now and again I, I, I have to contact Guy. I take my place in the queue with all the other people that want to contact him about different things. It's it's like being in the queue for King Solomon, I imagine, as Guy <laughs> dishes out wisdom and asks for money for people. But I checked him just to make sure he really wanted to include this as a news story, but he did. And apparently you did. To, uh, I don't know where you would have had the time to do this, Kieran, but apparently you've done some number crunching on the cost of filling in a Panini sticker book. Well, it is the price of football, so we, I've slightly extended it to the price of football stickers. I'm sure the Baroness was delighted to find that you, you, you'd found that one spare five minutes that you had together was now well, being taken up with Panini stickers. To be fair, um, I've been marking... Uh, and grading exams all over Christmas and the new year. Uh, and the Baroness felt sorry for me, so she went out and she bought me a Panini <laughs> sticker book. <laughs> this woman's a keeper. This, you know, this, yeah, this, she's, she's definitely a keeper. Answer. Yeah, I don't care what position she plays, Kieran. I think you should definitely... <laughs> sorry, that was a half-hearted joke. Go on, carry on. Yeah, no, I've, I've, Before we start, I have to say, I have to, I have to declare an interest on Panini stickers in that they drive me up the wall in that it's almost impossible to work with... Some younger comedians around. Yeah, I do a lot of work with people like Josh Widdicombe, John Richardson, and it's great. I really love working with them. They're nice, funny people. Come the 2018 World Cup, three months before that, it's just literally you have to crowbar their eyes off there. These are these are men in their thirties, Kieran, and you have to literally you have to slap them around the face to get their attention as they're swapping. So, and I have to then I have to sound like Granddad because I tell them about the old days where I had to collect SO World Cup coins and my, my dad couldn't drive, didn't even have a car. I had no yes. excuse to get petrol, but I still managed to collect SO. So Panini, you only have to just have to go to a newsagent and buy them. Well, well I, I remember in 1982, uh, which was World Cup year, and um, I, I was 
I was I, I had a summer job and and I'm, I'm pretty dumb when it comes to reading signals from people. <laughs> um, there was a girl where I was working who who was quite keen on me. Um, and she knew I liked football, and, and I got so I I am a dweeb, you know, I, I'm the first to admit it. Um, so I, I got talking to her about football, and, and I said to her, "Do you fancy coming to my place to take a look at my Panini uh, sticker collection?" <laughs> I brought her home, and I showed her my Panini sticker collection. I'd all Brian Robson's and was missing a Bulgarian fullback. <laughs> I think it was one of the most crushing days of her life. Well, Kieran, if, it, if it's any consolation, when I was about 16, uh, a young girl asked me if I'd like to come back to her flat for coffee. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't like coffee. Uh, so that took me a while to recover from that. Anyway, let, before we start getting on to um, Moscow-based panini stickers, as we almost inevitably will, what, um, I un- yes, I understand it, it can cost you a lot of money. Uh, certainly a young person could spend a lot of money on completing yes, a panini yeah. sticker. Uh, there's 690 stickers in total. Uh, for, for this is for the Premier League 2020-21. Um, it's going to cost you 70p for five of them. So if you do it with no swaps whatsoever, if you if you manage, and this is clearly statistically impossible, it's going to cost you 138 pounds. But of course, you end up with duplicates. So um, there was a mathematical model developed by Professor Paul Harper. Um, and uh, who's a proper academic? You know, he's, he's not a clown like me. You know, he's a proper academic. Um, and uh, I applied that to the Panini uh, model via my mate Lawsy. And if you want, if you're going to just buy the stickers yourself, it's going to cost you six hundred and eighty-seven pounds to fill your sticker album wow. um, for for the, the Premier League twenty 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 one, which which is you know more than the cost of a season ticket. I was just imagining that while you and I, you know, 1.5 million listeners or not, Kieran, you and I are essentially sitting here discussing swaps on a panini. I imagine somewhere Swiss Ramble is working out the perfect backgammon score, um, <laughs> which indicates a difference between us and, and he or she. Maybe she, we don't know. It's, just, yeah, it's um, a he, another Kieran. Oh, is it? It's, a, it's yeah. another Kieran? Yeah. Wow. So is Swiss Ramble a double-barreled name? Is he, is he Kieran Swiss Ramble? Uh, well, it's something like that. Yeah, it, it it turns out that me and him went to the same gigs in the uh, in the seventies and eighties because he he's also a big punk and new wave fan. Good lord! Um, and yeah, because we because we, we we've we've swapped a few messages here and there. Uh, yeah, he's he's a he's a he's a big fan of yeah. uh, the, the same type of stuff that that I still have t shirts about. Ah, that will explain that Twitter exchange. It's, and you you may well be a, a, an old punk, Kieran, but that's still no excuse for saying me and him. Rather than he and I, just, uh, just and the Swiss Rambles I, I, listening. I failed my English O level, Kevin. Did you? Yeah, that's a. Tr- I, I passed my. Uh, no, does he count as a pass in maths? It's the only one I didn't get. Uh, never mind. Let's not. <laughs> let's not ruin our credentials by telling people that we actually have some kind of qualification. Although I don't, obviously. Um, our first question comes from Adam Dyer, and Kieran. We take great pride in covering football at all levels. On this pod, but I believe this is our first ever visit to the Kent County League Premier Division, and a team that I imagine would probably be the closest to your family, as the as the crow flies, Peckham Town, uh, who are nicknamed the Menace, which is a great nickname. Uh, and it, in October, Adam Dyer says that he went with a couple of friends to see Peckham Town win five 0 in front of over two hundred fans, which he claims was their record attendance. And 
Adam says he got chatting to a couple of his friends, and they, at, at £3 per person, they won't be making much money from gate receipts. So do players at this level still pay subs to play, or can sponsorship and merchandise deals keep Peckham Town afloat alone? Um, I, I would expect for a player at this level, at county league level, um, that they wouldn't be paying subs. Um, the the commercial income, the, the match day income and so on, should broadly cover it. The clubs tend to have owners. Uh, I mean, you do get one or two players getting boot money at uh, at, at level seven. I mean, uh, Peckham Town, very, very progressive club. Yeah. They've got a woman manager. Yeah. Um, they are... You know, look, looking at their website, you know, they they were, well, they are uh, very, you know, very, very keen to, in terms of diversity and, and development. I think they've got something like 13 teams. So it's a fantastically run organisation. Um, and, and as you said, they, they they play at the Menace Arena, mm. which I just, what what a name for a stadium that is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's certainly one of the ones I'm, I'm, I'm going to go sort of, you know, along with our broth and other weird places that pl- who have contacted us since we started the podcast. It's on my list of, of places to visit. Um, in, in terms of sort of the tipping point as to where players start to go semi-pro, I think it would normally tend to be National League, North and South. So Peckham Town are a little bit below that, uh, but clearly they have ambitions. And, you know, to get 200 people to turn up is is, is a fair fair attendance. I think it was, is it £3 a pop they were charging? £3 a ticket, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's... that's they're going to struggle to cover all of their costs purely from from ticket sales, but uh, they do have quite a few sponsors. And they, you, you, at that level, you, you tend to have a local business person or two who is also uh, quite benevolent and, and supports the club. Yeah, they've only been in existence since I think 1982, uh, and their first sponsors were the Jamaican Embassy, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that is superb. Yeah. And also, you mentioned uh, the fact they have a, a woman manager, Mary Phillip. This is, a, this is going to be a very good. All of you people listening here, this could, this could win you a pub quiz, this bit of information. This could win you uh, who wants to be a millionaire, this bit of information, because um, Peckham Town won the London FA Senior Trophy last year, just before they went completely into lockdown, uh, managed by a woman. And. It, they believe, and we've done some se- separate research into this, we think it's the first time that a men's team managed by a woman has won a senior trophy. So um, that you can't get much more progressive than that. That's fan- that's fantastic, I believe. Yeah, um, That's the type of thing that if, if I was on a date with somebody and, and the, the conversation had run quiet, you know, I, I'd, I'd bring that up just to liven things up a bit. Yeah, and, and then, see, I'd have to have a word with you afterwards about your technique, Kieran, because, you know, obviously I would applaud you bringing that sort of information up, but, at the you know, the person you're on a date with was climbing out of the toilet window at the moment, <laughs> basically, because <laughs> it wasn't going particularly well. She didn't like the food very much, and then suddenly you're telling her about the first woman manager to win a trophy with a men's team. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine her saying to her, when her friends the next day say, how did that date go with that bloke? And isn't he married anyway? And she'll go, yeah, he didn't tell me he was married. But at least I know the name of the first woman to manage a men's senior team when they won the London FA Senior Trophy. So um, our next question comes from the splendidly named Benjamin Toast. Um, it's a great name, isn't it, Benny? Uh, uh, Benny Toast. If there's a 50s gangster movie, you just know Benny. <laughs> you, Benny Toast is going to be a grass. You know, you can just tell. You can just tell that. Benny Toast. Benny Toast will be played by Sid James when they're in a 50s gangster movie. Um, Benjamin Toast is a lovely. It's a lovely name. Uh, Benjamin, I imagine, is an Aston Villa fan because his question quite so, yeah, Aston Villa buy wisely, and as far as I know, says Benjamin, never have to terminate contracts 
by mutual consent. But how does that work when it does happen? Is a player unwanted by his club or any other just given a sum of money to go away, basically? And most importantly, if that is the case, where would it be placed on a balance sheet? Right. Um, if if a player does terminate contracts through through mutual consent, which is the polite word of saying it usually, um, and remember this happened with Jack Wilshire recently and West Ham. Yeah. Uh, and it it could be that he'll be paid up fully, uh, but clubs are reluctant to do that. Uh, I think with Jack Wilshire, it's estimated to be eighty five percent, but the the clubbing question rips up the contract. And I think something similar also happened with uh, with Danny Welbeck, who was at Watford. Okay. He had a contract, ripped up the contract uh, because it was after the end of the transfer window uh, and, and he's ended up playing at our place. Um, so sometimes it will be a, a way of getting round things that uh, if, if a player has a chance to go elsewhere, the existing club don't fancy him for whatever reasons, you know, it could be to the manager, then you could rip up the contract when you just walk away, shake hands. If the player is on a large amount of money, mm. um, he would be reluctant to do that. So if you think about Jamie Hart, O'Hara, was it Jack Rodwell at Sunderland and so on? So this is where you do get paid up. Um, it, it probably wouldn't appear in the balance sheet, but it, but it would appear, Benjamin, in the profit and loss account, um, and you'd have to go into the small print and look for something called an onerous contract. Um, and uh, they, they would, if, if it's a significant amount of money, then it would be added to the cost. So it would increase the losses or reduce the profits of the club during that particular year. I mean, it is far more common with managers that, that contracts get ripped up. Right. And you, you see managers leaving by mutual consent uh, but that will quite often involve a payout as well. Yes, yeah, I think we can. We all sort of assume that mutual consent is a euphemism for uh, being asked to leave rather than being told to leave, isn't it? Um, Tim Stevens has a question, and it's about the non-transfer of Michael Cuisance from Bayern to Leeds, which reportedly fell through because of a foot injury, which left doubts that he could keep up with uh, the intense Leeds training program. Uh, and Tim says, given the huge monetary decisions dependent on medical evaluations, how are team physicians' wages and compensation calculated? And presumably uh, a football club doctor is probably paid more than other doctors, your average GP, for example. I'm not necessarily sure this is the case. I mean, if, at, at the elite end of the, the Premier League, you might have specialist physicians who, whose focus clearly is on um, you know, the physical health and, and, and the main pressure points for footballers, which would be, you know, leg injuries and, and things of that nature. Um, would they earn more than they are earning in the NHS? Probably yes. Would they be earning more than they would do as a specialist operating in Harley Street? I'm, I'm not so sure. And what we tend to find is a, a lot of these guys won't necessarily, uh, if, if a club has got reservations, then they might outsource some of the the checking up. So that their in-house doctor will do sort of the core areas. And if he or she identifies areas of concern, then perhaps you might ask for a second opinion from perhaps a more senior physician. Um, I think if, if you are a doctor um, you know, and, and you want to, especially if you are research-based, then Football clubs probably aren't the best places to operate from because the work tends to be quite erratic. You know, you're only signing players for two or three months of the year. 
Um, and your players, players, sometimes you won't have anybody in in the mm. um, in, in the in, in the area where, where you know they're they're being treated. So you know, if the treatment room's empty, it's again, it's not necessarily a good use of a doctor's time. Um, so I, I don't think they'll necessarily be paid a lot more, probably more than the average GP. But um, a, a lot of them, especially in the lower leagues, are also part time. Um, you know, and therefore they'll just come in once a week to to check on bits and pieces, and the rest will be left to the, the physios themselves. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, I think, though, because uh, you know, Palace obviously have a, a club doctor who's been very high profile during the pandemic, giving advice to people about fitness and mental health, which is which is brilliant. But when when Tim talks about the the monetary decisions and the huge amounts of money involved, I mean, for example. Before the start of last season, whenever, whatever year that was, when Nathan Ferguson didn't sign for Palace because he failed his fitness test, but then we signed him at the start of this season, despite the fact he wasn't injured, he he wasn't fit, he failed, he passed his fitness test, but he hasn't played for us. So, you know, the the, the yes or no given by the the club doctor or whoever makes the decision is is a very big one, isn't it? Because you know, a club could end up paying wages for a player that doesn't actually get to play. For six months or a year, as could be the case in Nathan Ferguson. Yes, so, I mean, I mean, the, the the doctor's conclusions ultimately were based on uh, a series of standard tests, mm. um, and you know, you know, presumably there'll be X-rays involved as well and things that you know. I've got I've got no medical knowledge, um, but you, you'd normally do some form of you know bleep tests, things of that nature, um, and, and then you would compare that to to expectations for an individual of that age who is a professional athlete, um, and and it could be that they might have to go and ask for a second opinion. It, but you're absolutely right that if you get it wrong, um, it can be a very very expensive mistake. You've not just got the wages; you've got the fact that you might have committed yourself to a transfer fee of you know millions and millions. Yeah, I've got a feeling, Kieran, and I'm not. Hundred percent convinced about this because I'm not a medical man either. But I think even at Palace, fitness tests may have moved beyond a bleep test and getting them to run to the halfway line and back to see whether they fall over. Uh, even at, even at Palace, I think we've got some sort of cryogenic chamber. We've got a bucket with ice cubes anyway. So these these things have moved on, Kieran. Now, uh, are you ready for our next question, Kieran? Good, because it's a big. Uh, are you have you moved away from the? Have you done? Are you making a cup of tea again while we're talking? No, 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 I'm I'm still here. Okay, you, I, every now and again, I, I've just got this mental image of you just drifting off, making a cup of tea and stroking the dog while I'm... Don't rambling. drink, only drink water. You remember me, I, I don't do, do yes, tea, coffee, alcohol. You, you, yes, of course, you only drink, yeah, you only drink water and you only drink special water in your special flask, don't you? <laughs> Which, if, that, if you were a James Bond villain, yeah, that would definitely case. be your downfall. That would be very... Very early on in the film, there'd be a close-up shot of a flask. You think, well, why are they doing that? And you go, oh, he only drinks from the flask. James Bond would have noticed that. Now, Paul Stedman, um, we have the, the difficult question coming up in terms of detail after Paul's question. But Paul, Paul Stedman asks a fairly straightforward question with, I guess, uh, probably an essay-length answer. And, <laughs> and I like the sound of Paul, because basically Paul's question is, MK Dons, was it worth it? Um, Paul's a Brentford fan. He said he's still appalled by that decision in 2002 to effectively franchise Wimbledon. But now AFC Wimbledon are in the same league. Did the formation of MK Dons really make any sense financially? Um, if we take a look at MK Dons, I mean, they, they get decent crowds. Mm. Um, yeah, they're still averaging, they were averaging around about 9,000 pre, uh, 
pre-COVID. So yeah, they were doing reasonably well in terms of crowds. But I, I went and took a look at their accounts over the last decade, um, and they've averaged losses of £27,000 a week. Wow. So from a financial point of view, um, it's it's not been particularly successful. Um, it has been a challenge. Is it, is it Pete Winkleman who's the owner? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I, th- I think it's uh, it's it's they make the money um, from from the hotel, yeah. which is on the pre- which is on the premises. You know, you can actually book a room which oversees the uh, which oversees the pitch uh, and things of that nature. So, and I think they also try to make money from from other events and catering. But on, on a pure footballing perspective, um, MK Dons is is losing money year in year out. Um, and that was pre-pandemic, so it's not been a financial success. I mean, the crowds did get up to around about thirteen, fourteen thousand. They were in the the championship for one year, uh, but that wasn't particularly successful. I, I know when when they played us that season, um, I think they gave us ten thousand tickets yeah. for a five or a piece. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was a very good offer, um, and uh, they've 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 struggled to build the, the fan base beyond that hardcore of of around about nine to ten thousand um which which actually at league one standards is actually pretty good it is um pete winkelman is a music promoter but he looks like a music promoter as imagined by midsummer murders if uh, they if somebody in midsummer murders is clearly of a certain age who goes what does a music promoter look like oh it looked like him uh, but i think it's it's fair to say financially it's difficult to to quantify whether it's been worth it, but MK Don's community programs are are very very good. So there are people in the community that are doing things that are, are fitter than they would have been if that club hadn't have existed. So I, I think it would be a bit unfair to MK Don's fans who are as passionate about their club as we are about ours to to dismiss them. But I think it's a very good question actually whether it, whether now especially if AFC Wimbledon have been in the same division whether all that fuss was worth it. But I think the people who support them will say yes, it is now. Uh, Kieran, this is the one I had to strap. <laughs> yes, I thought that. <laughs> um, uh, this question comes from Brian uh, Seeker or Syker. Um I apologise, uh, Brian, for not knowing how to pronounce your name properly, but to be perfectly honest, not knowing how to pronounce your name is not my biggest problem <laughs> with this question, which is a very good question. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll jump in, and if you could give me a shout, Kieran, some kind of signal, or get the dog to bark when you've answered it, I'll, I'll jump back up, I'll jump in again. Um, uh, Brian says that your episodes inspired me to look into Swansea's accounts year-end July 19, which is very good. That's one of the things, Kieran, you really want people to do. You want to encourage people to, to investigate clubs themselves, don't you? Because that will the only way we'll get openness from football clubs. But So Brian's done his own investigating into Swansea's accounts. And he says they make for interesting reading. Um, I note, he says, that their gain on player sales is £30 million, which is paid out over time, but feels like a cash receipt. However, the corresponding amortisation seems to be more subjective and non-cash because that money has already been paid. Given their large net gain in previous windows, what makes their net amortisation schedule so close to break even now? Now, considering I struggled with the Panini stickers one, Kieran, I think <laughs> probably best is I maintain a dignified silence while you answer this very valid but quite technical question. Right. Uh, yeah, I think Brian might have got muddled on one or two issues here. Um, Swansea have been very successful in, in the last two or three seasons in terms of selling players, but 
uh, as recently as as 2017, when when they were in the Premier League, um, yeah, they spent over 60 million pounds on players uh, in a, in a single sing, single year. Amortization is taking that 60 million pounds and spreading it over, let, let's say, the average contracts four years. So that works out as 15 million pounds a year. And if you've still got those players, then you've still got the amortization charge. So if, if Brian thinks the amortization charge should be higher, it's not because the players that Swansea City have sold have been the likes of Ollie McBurney and Dan James who themselves have cost very little. So I think what's happened at Swansea is that they've got a a legacy issue in the sense that they've signed players on reasonably big transfer fees. And sort of going back, sort of linking to uh, Benjamin Toast's question earlier, um, sometimes you've got players who you'd like to get rid of, who you'd potentially like to terminate the contracts, and the player turns around and says, well, well, actually, I'm I'm on 45 grand a week here at Swansea. Nobody else is willing to offer me you know, any more than half of that. So I, I'm going to stick around. And you've not only got the the wage uh, issue, but you've also got the ongoing cost of the transfer in, in this thing called an amortization charge. So um, Swansea still had some reasonably big earners uh, in those 29 accounts, which and that's why the amortization charge is larger than perhaps you would have anticipated. Um, so... What I would expect is that by 2021, it will come down substantially. But it, these things do take a long time. And also sort of linking this to, to parachute payments. Um, pa- parachute payments uh, have been described in very negative terms. And that they they are not great, but it stops clubs in the championship going bust. And it makes the Premier League more competitive. And, and the critics of the parachute payment say, well, it's not good for the championship. And the Premier League will say, well, yeah, but we're not interested in the championship. We're interested in the Premier League. Premier parachute payments make Premier League football better, but championship football worse. Mm. And as it is the Premier League's money, it does seem a bit harsh that the critics are saying, well, it, surely we should put priority in the championship over the Premier League itself. I, I was talking to a, um, a a chief executive of a Premier League club um, and they said, you know, we're looking to sign players in January. Um, we, we can't go out and offer player a, a three and a half year contract on 40 grand a week if we stick in a relegation contract that if we do go down, um, we, he's going to have to take an eighty percent pay cut because that's what you would need yeah. if uh, if parachute payments are abolished. So yeah, this is a problem that Swansea had themselves when they went down. They they had players who they couldn't shift off the books because they were being paid so much, and ripping up those contracts would would be legally a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, what I find interesting about Brian's question is that. It's perfectly possible, it seems to me, Kieran, for for two people, three people, four people to look at the same set of accounts and interpret them in in different ways. I mean, Brian uses words like subjective. So I, even people that are, are forensically minded accounts-wise may take something different away from a set of accounts than somebody else could do. Is that is that a yeah, fair appraisal? That, 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 is a, that is a fair comment. Um, I'll be honest, every single number in the, uh, in the accounts – it is subjective with the exception of your closing cash balance and the number of shares. 
because there is, you know, how much is a player worth? How much is a stadium worth? How much is a club worth? There's no right answer. I think people sometimes get suckered in to thinking that accounting is very binary. Um, but, uh, you know, we've had this conversation before, and I know I sort of always say it in jest, when somebody comes to me and says, what do you think profit is? My standard response to a certain extent, well, well, what do you want it to be? Uh, you know, are, do you want these accounts for, for selling the business? Do you want these accounts because, uh, you know, I remember I gave the, the example when I, when I was in Moscow, we used to produce one set of accounts for the mafia who were, you know, because Russia is inherently corrupt, one set of accounts for the tax authorities, and you bribe the the tax inspector to accept them, and then one for the shareholders. And all of those, to a certain extent, are correct. Hmm. I still can't understand why you're not a wanted criminal in Moscow, Kieran, for for very many reasons. Um, One of the beauties of this pod, Kieran, is that we, we have questions from Brian that are technical, and we have questions from Paul Stedman, which are along the lines of MK Dons. What was that about? Um, and the, um, we encourage both sets of questions. If you have a question for us that you think is is probably too technical for me, ask it anyway because it won't be too technical for Kieran or for most of the people uh, listening to it. And if you've got a very straightforward question, ask that as well. That's one of the reasons, many reasons, I genuinely love doing this this pod. And speaking of which, we have a question about pods from Alan Day. Uh, who has given us a question before. And Alan says, do clubs receive any money from podcasts? Uh, And as there are so many fan-based team podcasts, are clubs entitled to any royalties or other payments? He then adds, thanks for a great show. And rather unnecessarily, I think, says, no, I'm not related to Kevin. Uh, You could be, Alan. You could be. Uh, (laughs) I don't think there's any need to add that at the end. All us days, somewhere along the line, we're, we're dairy workers back in medieval times, so we're all linked together. But this is an interesting question. I mean, because obviously clubs have official podcasts, which in my experience very few people actually listen to, but even I think Palace probably got five, at least five that I know of, including the one that I do, uh, uh, independent club podcasts, who use the, the Palace badge on their promotional activity, etc. So do, do clubs have any financial interest in any of these unofficial podcasts? Um, no, um, I mean, the, Palace could, in theory, um, charge you for the use of the club crest if, if, if they believe that you're using it for commercial purposes. And in doing so, you are uh, reducing the amount of money that, that they generate. But I think most clubs take a uh, they, they take the view that why upset your customers? Yeah, you know, why upset the fan base? It, it would be it would be foolhardy to do so. Um, they they are not entitled to any payments because uh, what you are doing as as uh, on five year plan which which are, I'd, I'd listen to as well even though I'm not a Palace fan um, and and it's excellent uh, along with you and your your, your co hosts uh, and I'm saying that as as a as a neutral in fact as as a person who hates your club say, um, nothing neutral about your relationship with Crystal Palace Football Club no, there isn't. and it's very hardly reciprocated I I, I went I did one of your your Brighton podcasts recently didn't I. Yeah, I did it with good grace and a fixed grin on my face. <laughs> um, but but the clubs aren't entitled to to payments for the actual publication because what we are talking about is 
personal experiences, observations, opinions, and things of that nature. And and the club cannot claim any uh, intellectual property rights over those because ultimately it comes down to the contributors, provided they say nothing which is slanderous or libelous or things of that nature, then uh, you know, the, the club really just has to, has to suck it up and see. And if they've got any sense... They should be listening to these podcasts because in any business, you want to know, um, you know, just just how things are mm. with, with people who are paying the money which runs the business. And, and it's actually an excellent way of, of gauging opinion. Well, it's, it's interesting, actually. I was thinking about this when this question came in from Alan. I was thinking about the difference between the old fanzine days, you know, those glory, you know, when sort of late 80s, early 90s. When suddenly, off the back of Viz mainly, you, every single club had these gloriously anarchic, hand-printed collage-type fanzines, and an awful lot of clubs tried to stamp them out. They tried to stop clubs using official badges on these hand-printed fanzines that were sold for 5p outside the ground, uh, partly because those fanzines were quite robust in their criticism of the clubs. But th- with podcasts now, certainly in the last five years, most clubs will actually approach podcast and say do you want players do you want people from the club because they realize that it's it's they can't put the lid back on that on that bottle the genie's not going back in that bottle basically podcasts are here to stay and for the and i, I think for the most every club podcast i listen to or take part in are, are every bit as good as as a radio as every bit as good as talk sport or five live as far as i'm concerned i i think podcasts are one of the great democracy issues of the past five years because everyone can have a go if they can afford the equipment and and do a good job. And I think, as you say, clubs realise now that they they're, they're much better off trying to be on the inside of these pods and moaning about them. So and I'm I'm all for them. I did the Northampton Town one recently and the Millwall one, really interesting. I've, and I've, I love the idea of being on a club podcast when I don't know what these people are talking about, and that's how it should be. Yeah. yeah. Um, Barry Walsh has asked a question. It's our penultimate question. Um, and it's a question that I'm amazed we haven't been asked before because it's one of those questions that's so simple. It's the sort of thing that I would automatically think of. And I'm, I, I may have asked you this in a pub back in the glory days when I still didn't know who you supported. But <laughs> Barry Walsh's question is quite is, it, it's simply this. What would a player's take-home pay actually be? Now, if a 22-year-old signs for a club and gets paid £100,000 a week, how much will they actually get after taxes, agents' fees, manager fees, personal chefs, etc.? And Barry's theory is that it's a lot of money, which is why 40% of players declare bankruptcy five years after retirement. But he also wants to know whether most players, certainly at the highest level, make their big money from personal sponsorship. Right. Let's let's just deal with, with these in turn. For a player who is on £5 million a year, and I've assumed here that twenty percent of his pay is going to go to his image rights company. Oh, that's so if, if you're on five million a year, you, t- you tend to be a good player. Therefore, you can legitimately say you've got image rights. HMRC, their their attitude is don't take the piss. Yeah. So twenty percent going to image rights. Okay, they will accept it. Um, if he's paying the maximum amount he can do into his his pension pot for tax reasons, that's forty k a year. Um, and you you crunch all that through his take home would be two point one million a year before giving some to his agent. And, and let's say the agent is on you know five percent of that, so he'd be taking home short short just short of two million pounds a year 
but the money which goes to his image rights company, he will be able to take out of that company at a later date, potentially when he retires. Or alternatively, that money could be taken out by um, a shareholder of the image rights company, which just may happen to be uh, his spouse or partner or, or, or things of this nature. Um so, so that that's that's where we are. So, yeah, we, yeah, footballers they they are talent. They are paid on in, in a talent based industry according to market rates. Um, but you know, based based on the calculations that I've done, and, and I spoke to somebody who who was an ex tax inspector earlier today about this, um, and and they said that that sounds about right in terms of the money. So. Um, you know, on a monthly basis, um, you know, one hundred and seventy-five grand, one hundred and eighty grand uh, would be your 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 average take-home pay. You see that that simple phrase there earlier today, Kieran, illustrates the different professions that we work in. Because we started recording this at eleven o'clock in the morning. For me, there is no earlier today. <laughs> well, how is there an earlier today at eleven o'clock in the morning? Is what, what am I doing up at the crack of dawn? And you've been up talking to. <laughs> Accountants and HMRC people. That five percent agent fee you mentioned there was—is that a, an example, or is that the standard fee that agents? It, it, it's, it's just it's just an example. Right. Remember, we have spoken to to our agent before, yeah. um, and, and he said that the the amount of work uh, involved, to a certain extent, will dictate the the commission that the agent will will say because there's there's they can offer it, it, it's a bit like if you if you go on a flight you can you can chat economy premium plus business or first class depends what the, what what's being offered by the agent um I thought it was interesting that I was reading a report that uh, Raheem Sterling I think is uh, is is terminating his relationship with an agent and is moving simply to have a lawyer to to mm. uh, negotiate fees on his behalf and and if and if that is the case then he'll just be paying a flat fee um in terms of the advice that's being given so i think players are now saying to themselves well what exactly are we getting from the management company from the agency um and you know looking at their longer term future as well yeah because that's where it gets complicated for the most high paid players as well because not only have they got legal representation and agents they've also got managers as well, possibly more than one. So you're looking at, I imagine somebody like Lionel Messi's probably got a team of 30, 40, 50 people looking after his interests. Whereas, as you say, Raheem Sterling has decided, I hear, along with other Premier League players, that they can get by with just having a lawyer to check contracts as and when they happen. So thank you for that question, Barry. It's a very interesting one. Our final question comes from uh, Kevin Kraut. Uh, and I thought that possibly Benjamin Toast had the best surname of the day, but Kevin Kraut, uh, that's a great surname. And if Kevin can uh, shed any light on how his surname came to be, C-R-O-U-T, uh, I'd love to find out. Um, and Kevin, again, it's, a, it's something we've been talking about quite a lot recently, but Kevin's found another angle, and he's a, he's a Charlton fan, so in particular he's tied it to the, the rumoured sell-on clause of 20% for Carl and Grant. Uh, basically, Kevin's question is, uh, are sell-on clauses paid in full once that next transfer is complete, or are they paid in instalments like a transfer fee would be paid? Um, I think I think we probably we spoke about this not too far ago, which isn't a proper praise. Um, it, it will depend upon the the wording in the contract, and, and therefore it can vary. Um, 
you would normally expect a, a sell-on clause to crystallise at the date of the, the second sale of the player. Mm. And if that's the case, the money will then become due immediately. Um, if the contract is worded loosely, it could be that the, the sell-on clause is linked to the cash flows from the second contract, which could be on an instalment basis. If, if I was Charlton, I would have hoped that I would have done the former. But you know, as far as they're concerned, their player has been sold. If if there's a further sell on, then that that contract immediately crystallises in terms of the money becomes due at that particular date, and and that would allow, of course, Lee Boyer to go into the, the January market if this contract does this this uh, transfer does take place. But but it, it, not, nothing. There is no such thing as as an as as a standard contract. All, all all contracts these days tend to have bits and pieces which get changed, and that's why you know and we, you know we 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 jest about our silver tongued friends uh, in the legal profession. That's why it's essential that clubs and players do have somebody with some form of legal background to scrutinise them, uh, scrutinise these contracts on their behalf. Yeah, well, we're still working to reschedule our interview with the Charlton owner, which we couldn't manage to do last week. So hopefully we can ask him that specific question when we do get to talk to him. And with Kevin Kraut's question on sell-on clauses, I think we've probably covered every angle. So uh, if you have a question about sell-on clauses that we haven't covered, I will ask it and I'll donate £10 to a charity of your choice because otherwise I'm declaring that subject closed. But if you have questions for us on anything, any aspect of football finance from Peckham Town up to Barcelona, then it's questions at priceoffootball.com and we will be back with you on Thursday with our news pod. Uh, And I'm, I'm guessing, Kieran, might as well get this out of the way here now. I think Derby probably will be mentioned on that as well. Well, we we don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. That's true. We, so, that's always been that's always been a problem for both of us, Kieran. We know that. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yes. So uh, once again, folks, thank you for your your kind words. Um, if if you want, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe using the the Apple or the Spotify. Uh, buttons and if you could leave us a, a review doesn't matter what you say yeah you, you could say it would be much better if it was presented by miriam margoles and robert smith of the cure uh, than myself and kevin we, we would not be upset i think that i think that I'd, I'd pay big money to listen to that i would pay um, massive money to listen to that <laughs> she is the most potty mouth woman i've ever met in my life miriam margoles she's, she's seriously so i thought no i mean she my mum was a brilliant user of bad language goessa so a million margolies my god uh and robert smith to get imagine that as a comment i'm just wondering who would be hosting that one i'm, <laughs> I'm going to be miriam margolies you can be robert smith here you can be the cool one in this situation um and also if josh widdicombe does have any swaps for panini <laughs> you know where to find me on twitter i've, I've got a few Let, let's get together <laughs> i'll pass that message on bye everybody <laughs> bye the price of football. The price of football.